Let me invite you this morning to take your Bible, make your way to the book of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter number 1. Last week we began a uh, series, an exposition through this book, and we're going to be coming through the book of 1 Timothy verse by verse. And uh, we began with verse 1 and 2 and really saw uh, an introductory and overview to the book of 1 Timothy and uh, saw Paul's greeting to Timothy and learned a little bit about Timothy himself and some background regarding him. And so uh, that message is on Sermon Audio if you, if you hadn't, hadn't been able to catch it. Uh, but now we pick up in verse number 3, and we're going to come down through verse number 7. And the title of the message is Doctrine Matters. Doctrine Matters. And so let's read our text and uh, come through it together, and I pray we can glean some things that would be good for our Christian life, but also our church together. Notice that Paul writes to Timothy in verse 3, he says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God, which is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. When we think about the elements that we see within a church, what would we say is the most important element of a church? Is it the grandeur of their building and their facilities? Is it the number of people, whether it's many or few? Is it the programs or the excitement that maybe you get from a particular church? We could list a number of things that we see within churches and that are part of church life overall, but one takes top priority and top importance among all of them. That is doctrine. Doctrine. One thing supersedes all the other things, and that is doctrine. That is the most important aspect of any church is its doctrine. But you know what? You mentioned the word doctrine, and automatically, some people tune out. Oh, here we go. This is going to be boring. I not about you, but growing up, anytime I heard the word doctrine, I just knew it was going to be a boring sermon. And so I'm going to do my best not to make it boring for you. But if you just pay attention and let the Word of God be the Word of God, glean what it says, and maybe we'll see some things. You think about doctrine. Many people don't like doctrine or say, I just don't like doctrine, because doctrine is divisive. Yes, doctrine divides. That's the nature of it, because truth divides. When we say doctrine, essentially we're saying truth, truth. So what we find here is that doctrine, understand, it is the foundation of Christianity. It's foundational to the church itself. I like what Steve Lawson said. He said, Christianity without doctrine is like math without numbers and music without notes. You can't have Christianity without doctrine. You can't have a church without doctrine. So why is that? You see, to know why doctrine is so important, we must know what doctrine is. What is doctrine? Paul uses the word doctrine in our text, and it's used in many other texts. According to Oxford Dictionary, doctrine means a set of beliefs or principles held and taught by a church, political party, or other group. So it's teachings. We see 
word, the word doctrine used in Scripture in both the Old and the New Testaments. The Greek word for doctrine is also translated as teaching in many cases, and it's a term that can mean the act of teaching or that which is taught. So when we think of doctrine, we're talking about the substance of truth that is believed and taught by the church. You see, the truth taught by the church is not to be manufactured by the church, but only is to be a communication of what God has revealed to the church, and that being the word of the living God. Say, why is doctrine so important? Because without it, what do you have? You don't really have a foundation to stand on. We have no right to pick and choose doctrine. We simply believe the doctrine taught in Scripture, and we love it, and we obey it, and we live it, and we apply it to our life. Now, as we come into this book, it's important to understand that probably an undergirding or theme verse for the book we would see in, in 1 Timothy 3.15, where Paul tells Timothy and the people of God that he wants them to know how they ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of what? The truth. And when he tells them how to behave in the church, he's not talking about getting on to the kids for running around the sanctuary, okay? Uh, boy, I'm, yeah, that's, that's why I've heard it preached that way, but that's just not what he's talking about. He's talking about order. He's talking about structure. He's talking about belief and conviction. How the church conducts things. What they believe. And so Paul jumps right into focus here, opening this letter to Timothy about doctrine. Here in the church. And notice with me three things I want to bring to your attention from our text. Notice with me, number one, the charge concerning doctrine. There's a charge here, a command here given to Timothy concerning doctrine. And I've broken this down into two aspects that are intertwined together. They're inseparable from each other, but I want to distinguish them a little bit. Number one, or letter A, is that Timothy was to communicate doctrinal truth to the church. Timothy was to communicate doctrinal truth to the church. Now, after Paul gives this gracious opening to Timothy, he dives right into this urging and pressing matter. Look at verse 3. You'll notice that he says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia to remain at Ephesus. Now, this sticks out for me just a moment. Notice the weight of Paul's words. Notice that he urged Timothy. He urged Timothy to something. How important is something when you're being urged to do it? It usually means it's pretty important, right? We were visiting mom back on Christmas break, and we were, I was just in the other room relaxing and enjoying myself, and it was late at night, and, and uh, mom says, Come in here quick! The toilet's overflowing. <laughs> For some reason, the water would not quit running through, and so it came up over the top and was pouring out over the over the edge into the bathroom and and uh, when you get that kind of call you know it's urgent get in here and help me and so I proceeded to do that and that proceeded into not so fun of a Christmas with sickness and all that stuff but uh, nevertheless it was an urgent matter you don't let water keep flowing out of the house right you don't want to ruin your house now depending on the nature of what is urgent it could be life or death an overflowing toilet probably ain't life or death, but it's something you got to take care of. When it comes to doctrine, you understand that doctrine has eternal ramifications. 
Doctrine is not a light matter. Doctrine is not something to sweep under the rug and take as if it's not that big of a deal. You see, if doctrine is compromised, the gospel very well may be at stake. And understand, Christian, that if we lose the gospel and its purity and its truth, we lose everything. We cannot compromise truth and doctrine as it will undermine the gospel. You see, Paul knew the gospel was an urgent matter and was always involved in the church's need for the pure gospel to be founded on the right doctrine. Now, he wrote to the Galatians. He warns them in Galatians 1, 8 through 9, about believing different teachings, no matter where they came from, even from angels. He said in Galatians 1, 8 through 9, he says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As I have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. Paul repeats himself for emphasis here. There is no messing with the gospel. Now, is the gospel at stake with Paul's urgency to Timothy? It very well could be, depending on how deep these doctrines go. And I think they probably are. Because of what Paul's urging Timothy to do here, what does Paul urge him to do? In verse 3, he says, He left him in Ephesus for this purpose, that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Now, there's a few things I want to bring out with that one statement that I think are worth gleaning. The first one is this, is that there must have been a common unity of doctrine, a body of doctrine and teaching that that church held to. Every church should have that. A statement of faith or a confession of faith of the truth that unites them. We have that. We have the Philadelphia Confession of Faith. If you want a copy of it, we've got all plenty of them to hand out. But it's a well-organized and documented, systematic layout of doctrine and scripture and why we believe what we believe. But you think about this reality of doctrine here in the church is that there is only one true faith in, in existence. There's not two true faiths. There's one set of doctrine that is essential to the gospel. Look, look at Jude 3 in our notes. Listen to this. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. You know what that means, Christian, that God has given his truth. He's not continuing to reveal new doctrines to add to his truth. He's already given it. And we find our body of doctrine essentially and primarily in the word of God. That is the, word, that is the authority. There is no authority. You see, even any confession or body of, of statement of faith is bound to the authority of scriptures. Because that too can be pinned down wrong. You notice he mentions the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That's a reference to more than just personal faith. You understand, the faith is often a reference to the body of doctrinal truth in Christianity. Now, do you think that Ephesus would have been founded upon doctrinal truth. Paul spent two years or so there ministering, teaching them the word of God. Paul sends a glorious letter to the Ephesians. We came through that when I first came here. 
And what, what, a, uh, what a masterpiece of, of doctrine to the glory of God the book of Ephesians is. Spells it out so deep, so wise, so clear, so plain. But now here in Ephesus, this church, they are threatened with false doctrine. You could easily say that 1 Timothy is an indirect second letter to the Ephesians that would come firstly to Timothy and be read and applied to them. What else do we see with this charge in Timothy? The second thing I note in this little statement is that there are certain persons engaged in teaching different doctrine. Certain persons. Certain persons. You see, these people have names, though Paul does not name them here. Perhaps as Timothy read this letter to the congregation, those people got the side look from those who knew exactly who Paul was talking about. So-and-so, <laughs> he's been saying this stuff Paul says not to believe and teach, right? Anytime me or my sister got in trouble and one of the parents was, you know, spelling out what was done wrong and who did it, whoever did whoever was wrong, the other one was looking at him like, yeah, that was you. <laughs> you did that. <laughs> you know, we give each other the side glance. We knew who was really guilty. There are people in this congregation who are the certain persons. The ones who are veering off, the ones who are promoting false doctrine. Now, these people, whoever they are, they have no right to teach or change the doctrine that was given to the church from God himself. Why? Because all true doctrine is delivered from the Holy One, and all of his word is inspired of him, perfectly inerrant, and is not to be altered in any fashion. Nobody has the right to change what the word of God teaches. Nobody does. John Calvin rightly comments here. He says, We therefore teach that faithful ministers are now not permitted to coin any new doctrine, but they are simply to cleave to the doctrine which God has subjected men without exception. So here's just a little hint for you. If you hear somebody come up with a new doctrine today, reject it. Because there is no new doctrine. There's only the doctrine that's been ever since the word of God was penned. Truth is absolute and unchanging. It means there's one true doctrine. Any doctrine that is different from true doctrine is a false doctrine. There's only one right theology of God. Every other theology is wrong, no matter what they claim. But you know what? Paul wasn't shocked that this was happening. He, he knew it was going to happen. In fact, he warned the church while he was in Ephesus that this kind of thing would happen. He says in Acts, note this. In Acts 20, 29 through 30, he says, I know, Paul talking to the Ephesian elders, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. You know what Paul's deep concern here is? It's that God's people would be drawn away by false teachers. And that is always the concern of me, and it should be the concern of you. Those of you who know the truth, you understand and should be concerned about them. See, this is why Paul's charge to Timothy here is so important. And so what is he to do from this charge? The third thing here is to communicate the true doctrine to the church, reaffirming them of what is true that they know. See, Timothy was grounded and mature enough in spiritual truth 
to be able to communicate true doctrine to them. Paul trusts him with this task because he is able and equipped by God to do this. But that ties into this next aspect, letter B. Not only was Timothy to communicate doctrinal truth, Timothy was to correct doctrinal error. He was to correct doctrinal error. Notice that we see these certain persons are teaching not the same doctrine, but a different doctrine. So in connection with these false doctrines being propagated, Paul gives some insight into some things that were contributing to this false doctrine. In verse 4, Timothy is to urge them, to charge them not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Now this may seem, you know, like we don't know exactly what he's talking about right here. It may, may, it may seem a little subject here. What's, what's Paul referencing here? What are these myths and genealogies? Well, we could refer to several things. When you look at ancient Ephesus, there was an abundance of mythical teachings and pagan influences. Gnosticism was on the rise and was a great threat to the church. The description of life in Ephesus and Acts 19 and even Revelation 2, they portray a church that is tempted by the occult, enticed to go into error by savage heretics. And finally, we find the danger of abandoning in Revelation 2 their first love and their commitment to Christ. That's where false teaching ultimately leads. But these particular myths and endless genealogies appear more to be Jewish in nature rather than Gentile. Paul writes to Titus because that was a thing the early church dealt with too. Titus 1, 13 and 14, he says to him, This testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. You see, Titus has a very similar command for him. For the churches in Crete. There's a little insight maybe we can glean here. One commentary states this. The two ancient Jewish texts shed further light on Paul's meaning. One is entitled the Book of Jubilees, written around 125 B.C. Another was written after AD 70 and is called the Biblical Antiquities of Philo. Listen to what these books do. These books retell. Catch that. They retell the Old Testament story from a Pharisaic point of view and include extended genealogies. They go beyond the scriptures to speculate about the biographies of the biblical saints. In other words, these false teachers in Ephesus are picking up on some of these myths and endless genealogies to distort the Old Testament and then turn around and bring the Old Testament to bear on the people, which completely was contrary to the gospel of Christ. Paul's concern here with this, understand, Paul's concern here with these myths and these genealogies is that they lead God's people astray, pondering into things that really don't matter, number one, but not only that, but they bring about contentious relations between brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. You could possibly say they were going down a theological rabbit hole that was not founded on the word of God. He greatly opposed them. Why? Look at verse 4. What's he say about these myths and endless genealogies? What do they promote? They promote speculations. 
rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Speculations. Paul opposed these things because they caused speculation. They distracted Christians from the truth that they were to hold to and to live out. And they were founded upon false doctrine. Now, we look at this and say, well, that's just a first century issue. It's very much a modern day issue. Just repackaged in different forms. You understand there's an abundance of myths, abundance of extra-biblical and distorted writings that bring doctrinal divisions among people, professing Christians. For example, the Book of Mormon is a false cultic writing. It's under the umbrella of Christianity from a society's viewpoint, but it is not Christian in any way. It is penned by Joseph Smith in the early 1800s who claimed to have, catch this, additional scripture from God, from an angel who spoke to him. You bear in mind what Satan is called. He's called the angel of light. And he appears as a minister of righteousness to deceive so that people would even think he is righteous. That's one example. But then you think about maybe some other extra-biblical writings we have to be cautious with. The Apocrypha. If held to the authority of Scripture, can lead one astray as it does not harmonize with the body of Scripture we have today. There's a reason it's not canon. Now, you may glean some historical insight from it, but it must not be held to the level of Scripture. It is not divinely inspired. Another one that has caught ground in recent years is the Gospel of Thomas. Anybody heard of the Gospel of Thomas? Some groups have made this famous. The Gospel of Thomas was compiled in Egypt sometime between A.D. 150 and A.D. 350. It claims to contain, catch this, 120 secret words of the living Jesus. Myths, speculations. More examples could be given, and I've seen them today, but it goes beyond that. You understand that some Christians become so consumed with conspiracies and secret messages of various kinds from various sources that they are completely drawn away and distracted from the faith in Christ. All of it deters them from the anchored truth that they have known. Now let me ask you this. Do you think God's people are to be prompted towards speculations or assurance of truth? Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. We just sung a moment ago. Friend, truth is for our assurance, not speculation. See, from these Jewish myths, these false teachers were promoting new and false doctrine. False doctrine always will undermine the gospel in one way or another. And Paul, Paul said again to the Galatians, that was another group of churches at risk here. Galatians 1, 6 through 7, he says to them, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Friend, every step away from the true gospel is a dangerous, dangerous step. And Timothy here is tasked with correcting these false teachers. Now, you know what this means, right? 
It means that because of doctrine, he is going to have to interact with them. He's going to have to talk with them. He's going to have to rebuttal and rebuke them. And he's going to have to call them to repentance. Call them to the truth. You understand nowadays, nobody wants confrontation, right? It's not fun. But it's an inescapable part of Christian ministry. Because not everything is right and not every doctrine is true. And the church must uphold what is true. James 5, 19 through 20, listen to this. He writes concerning a similar issue. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from what? The truth. And someone brings him back. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. It's worth it to stand for truth. And you do that in the spirit of love. Spurgeon rightly said this, that if you long to save men's souls, you must tell them a great deal of disagreeable truth. I mean, that, that comes down to the basic fundamentals of sharing the gospel. You understand that in order to, to, to see a sinner saved, they first have to hear something they're going to disagree with. You're a sinner on your way to hell. Oh, surely I'm not that bad. Yeah, you are. And Christ died for sinners. You must repent and believe on him or you will perish in your sins. That's a disagreeable and uncomfortable truth to the natural man. But it must be said. If men are to be saved, they must repent and believe on Christ. He's the only way. There's not multiple ways. There's one way. And it's Jesus alone. And that ties into doctrine too. Though correction is a hard task... It's a necessary task that Timothy has been called to carry out. So we see the charge concerning doctrine. Notice with me number two. We see the goal concerning doctrine. There's a goal here that Paul mentions in verse number five. And I'll admit I wrestled with this text a little bit, just kind of understanding what he means. But I think I'll, just, I think I'll bring it out the best of my ability, and if you have a difference, you can talk with me later about it. But I think it's pretty straightforward. He says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now, I've broken this down into two things. I want you to see the first part of this goal is that the goal here is a genuine Christian love in the heart and life. False doctrine doesn't breed that, but true doctrine does. A genuine Christian love in the heart and life. Now, essentially what Paul's showing us here, he's showing a contrast between the end of what false teaching does and false teachers bring and what true teaching does and what truth brings. He says the aim of our charge is love. What charge? He just talked about the charge. We just covered the charge. It's the charge he gives to Timothy to correct false doctrine and communicate true doctrine. The end result of true doctrine comes to love. Now the question is, what do you mean by love? What's the object of love he has in mind? Most believe that he means love towards God and love towards his people. Paul wants them more than anything to have a love for God the way they should and a love for their neighbor the way they should because that is the greatest of all commandments which ties into the law which is the undergirding context of these false teachers. Jesus taught in Matthew 22, 37 through 39, he said to them, 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Will you and I love God properly if we distort his truth and don't know his truth like we should? No. You understand, if you have a distorted view of God, you're not going to love the true God. Truth matters here. Will we love our neighbor rightly if we're contentious about myths and other divisive differences that really are, shouldn't be? No. You see, these things were causing problems in the church in Ephesus. So the end of true doctrine brings about the God-given love that we should have. Now, we must recognize that the context of Paul's words here are in light of the false teachers using the law to teach false doctrines that were stirring up controversies and speculations. Now, Paul's going to expound a little bit on the proper use of the law in the next section, but the connection here is meaningful. Why is that? Because a proper understanding of the law and use of the law leads to love. This is where you see that. Romans chapter 13 and verse 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. See, Paul wants the Ephesians to develop and know this genuine love that is rooted in true teaching, not in false teaching or an abuse of the truth. And so Timothy was to communicate this while also doing it in the spirit of love. There's the spirit of love in view that we might say. Letter B, notice this, that the goal concerning doctrine, a genuine Christian love in the heart and life. But notice the ground of Christian love in the heart and life. Notice that there's a connection here that this love flows from. And this is where true doctrine is the foundation of this. Paul says that this love issues from a pure heart. What is the heart? I'm not talking about your physical beating heart. The heart in the scripture is the seat of the mind, emotions, and will. It is the innermost being. And anyone who lacks a pure heart cannot demonstrate the Christian love they ought to have seen here. Say, well, how does one come to have a pure heart? Since we know no one naturally has a pure heart and cannot purify their heart of themselves. We, church, know the answer to that. We have a pure heart only through conversion, through the new birth. The blood of Jesus washes us clean. And thus we find our heart is purified or cleansed by the gospel work of Christ. And guess what, friend? In order for it to be cleansed by the gospel work of Christ, you've got to have the right gospel. You don't get saved by false gospels. You get saved by the true gospel. And this teaching, correct teaching, understand this gospel would produce true conversion and practice in the heart for the one who has been changed. This love that the Christian knows flows from truth and not error. But we also note an next aspect he brings out. In verse 5, he says also that this love issues from a good conscience and sincere faith. What's Paul mean by a good conscience? Everyone has a conscience. Well, not everyone's conscience is maybe in the same state. The conscience is the God-created, self-judging faculty of man. It is what you'd call our 
moral, internal moral witness of the law of God. A person's conscience can become distorted and defiled, seared, calloused. We read in later in the book, or excuse me, in Titus, Titus 1.15, we see this. To the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. And because of our depravity, our conscience is prone to dive deeper into sinful callousness. We need to be informed and guided by the truth of the word of God. If we are to discern and practice what is right. If one departs from truth for error, they endanger their conscience. Because Paul will write later that these, these people in the last days who, who teach these doctrines of demons, their consciences have been seared. They have followed after this. And so what we find here that this good conscience ties into right teaching, which ties into right conversion, knowing Christ. But notice also that Paul says this love issues from a sincere faith. And Christian, this truly is really the foundation that builds up to love. In reverse order, I guess you could say. What is a sincere faith? It's the opposite of a hypocritical faith. It's the opposite of an empty profession of faith. It is what Timothy had. Paul said to Timothy, I know that you have a sincere faith that dwelt first in your mother and your grandmother. You have a sincere, genuine faith. You know Christ. You're not an empty professor, but you possess Faith. You see, this is why doctrine is crucial to the genuine Christian love. Because faith is rooted in this. You know, Paul urged the Corinthian church to examine themselves concerning their faith. 2 Corinthians 13.5 He says to them, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? You see, all of these elements here that Paul brings out are fruit from true doctrine, not erroneous doctrine. And I think his contrast becomes clear for what he wants Timothy to understand and communicate to the church. And I gave somewhat of a summary note. It comes from the ESV Study Bible. It's a wonderful, wonderful study Bible if you have it. But let me read this to you. It summarizes it better than probably than I could. He says, Whereas false teaching results in meaningless speculation, proper apostolic teaching results in practical good behavior rooted in love. And that love must come from internal spirit work changes that have produced a pure heart rather than one filled with sinful desire, a good conscience rather than one laden with guilt, and a sincere faith rather than pretense and hypocrisy. This verse is central for the whole of the letter. And it's right dab in the middle of Paul's charge to Timothy regarding doctrine. But notice with me number three and lastly, the error concerning doctrine. We see the goal of this doctrine. The goal is love out of a pure heart, out of a good conscience, out of a sincere faith. All of that is grounded in truth. But the error concerning doctrine here, and here's where we see more about the false teachers. Really two principles I'll point out about these false teachers is that false teachers, they wander from the truth. They wander from 
the truth. What's it mean to wander? You ever just wandered around, drifted, walked this way, walked that way, thought this way, thought that way? Your thoughts can wander if you don't rein them in. How does a false teacher become a false teacher? Well, sometimes a false teacher was brought up under nothing but erroneous teaching, and that's all they know. But other times, false teachers are people who once were among the truth, but little by little stepped away from truth. Paul says here in verse 6, certain persons, once again, no names, but they're there, certain persons, by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion. Again, he mentions the certain persons, but notice what they've done. They have wandered from these. What's the these in reference? It's what he just said in verse 5. These people have wandered from what this is. They have swerved away from love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. They have gone a different direction, a different way. They are heading down a path contrary to sound doctrine that even goes against the Christ they professed to know. We read of people like this in many of the New Testament letters, and I've mentioned this last week that much of your New Testament was written in correction of false teaching, which in turn gives us true teaching. John the Apostle wrote of those who he had labeled as Antichrist. Now, don't mix that up. Everybody, you hear Antichrist, they think of some one day into the world figure. Antichrist literally means one who is against Christ. It can apply to anybody who is against Christ. That's what it literally means. He says there's many Antichrists that have gone out in the world. There's many who are against Christ. But look at this. In 1 John, notice what he says regarding these false teachers. 1 John 2, 18 and 19, he says, Children, it is the last hour, and you have heard that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. Notice this. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. You notice where they started and then where they went. They were among the Christians. Then they departed out of the Christian. They were among the truth. But then they slowly left the truth. And the fact that they left the truth is evident. Evidence of the lack of truth in their hearts. See, these people Timothy was to deal with were truly enamored by the speculative. The mythical, the mythical that led them away from the truth one step at a time. Because that's how it happens. One step away from Christ, away from the word, away from the church. The next step gets a little easier. The next step gets a little easier. If you don't know Christ, you're just going to keep on walking. You're just going to keep on walking. Paul describes them at the end of the letter, 1 Timothy 6, 20 through 21. Listen to this. He says, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have what? Swerved from what? 
the faith, right? They're swerving from the faith. They're swerving from the wrong thing, right? That's one thing to swerve from the right thing. You got a false teaching coming to you? Swerve away from it. Go back to truth. But to swerve from the faith, you're going the wrong direction. Wrong direction. They might have even thought they were following after truth, but they swerved into a ditch. And we see this kind of activity today. There's an abundance of false teaching under the umbrella of Christianity right now. And some of it is very dangerous. Though it claims to be Christian in title, it undermines the gospel of God's glorious grace. Beyond that, there's a deconstruction movement of people who are proudly professing and testifying. I've left the Christian faith. I'm free. I see this all the time on social media today. How'd they get to that point? Well, one, we know if they've left the Christian faith, they profess they don't like Christ, they don't know Christ, they never knew Him to begin with. They didn't, be, they didn't leave Christianity, they never were a Christian. But one little thing at a time leads them that direction. I see one particular person pop up all the time, and they're literally on there all day, every day, on those live streams. That seems to be the common thing, right? And I've left Christianity. Chat with me. One day I commented and asked her, I said, why do you, why do you spend all day on live trying to answer questions about, you say, about things that you say you don't know anything about? <laughs> you know, that went down, right? She blocked me. <laughs> she didn't want anything to do with me after that. That's just a genuine question. What are you doing? <laughs> if you don't know the answer, what are you doing? You know, we look at those people and we ought to seek to win them with the truth because they've followed a road of deception. They've been deceived. You see, all of this points us to the importance of doctrine and being grounded in true doctrine. But more importantly, this points us, and this ties together to the importance of truly knowing Christ because you can have all of the right doctrinal answers but be empty inside spiritually. I'm afraid that's another issue in the church today. Many who know Bible truth in the sense of intellectual knowledge, but they don't actually know Jesus in their heart. They've never been born again. So these false teachers, they have left the truth and they need the pure gospel. But notice with me, letter B, not only do you see that false teachers, they wander from the truth, as Paul describes here, but we also find that false teachers are ignorant of the truth. That comes without saying, doesn't it? If you're teaching what's false, you're obviously ignorant of what is true. Verse 7, notice what he says of these teachers. He says of their desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or of the things which they make confident assertions. This spells out so plainly what's happening with false teachers. These people who swerve from the truth, they have a desire to be teachers in the context of the law here. You can apply it to any other context of a doctrine. But here's a great caution when it comes to teaching in the church. And we have to understand this. Can just anybody be a teacher in the church? No. Absolutely not. Let me give you a couple things regarding this. Teachers must be spiritually mature and grounded in the faith and doctrine to teach. Someone who is not has no place teaching in the church. This is one reason Paul in this letter, he's going to give qualifications for elders that are apt to teach to root out some of these other guys that don't qualify for this position. To make sure that those who are teaching and leading in the church 
they meet a certain accountability. And one of those qualifications is that of Christian maturity and development, being sound in the faith. Now understand, teaching is not limited to the office of an elder. But the elder or pastor is accountable for what is being taught in the church. That falls on me, church. So I am going to be picky about who teaches. I'm not going to let the average Joe come in here and just decide they're going to take up teaching. That's not how it goes. Now, while some may have good intentions in wanting to teach, they may need further development first before being able to do such. You see, these particular people in Ephesus, they have a desire to be teachers. That's not a bad desire to want to be a teacher. But they weren't qualified to be teachers. They weren't ready to become teachers. Because their doctrine was totally out of line, and that is dangerous to the church. John Calvin rightly comments, I love this quote, he says, Zeal without doctrine is like a sword in the hand of a lunatic. You don't give a sword to a lunatic. Zeal without doctrine is dangerous. But notice, secondly, when it comes to teaching, teachers have a stricter judgment upon them that many sometimes may not realize. It's not a light matter to be a teacher of the Word of God. James 3.1, listen to what he says here. He says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with what? A greater strictness. Those who handle the word of God have a greater accountability upon them for teaching. Every teacher is accountable for what they teach and how they handle the word of God. And this is why Paul urges Timothy with this. Because you understand, Timothy's just a man too. He's got to pay attention to this. In 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul tells him, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed. And notice this last statement. Rightly handling the word of truth. Friend, if the word of truth can be rightly handled, that means it can also be wrongly handled. And we're accountable to rightly handle the word of truth. Now this doesn't mean that we may have a misinterpretation here and there. Because we genuinely thought it said something different. What it does mean, we better give our best effort to rightly handle the word of God. And if we see where we have misinterpreted, we correct it. Because truth is always right and I'm always wrong if I go against truth. You see, the, these teachers in Ephesus were teaching things, look at this, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they are making confident assertions. They're teaching without understanding, or, or, and they're saying these things with confident assertions. They're like children making up things. When you come to think about the myths and stuff they're propagating, it kind of is, Right? Sometimes David would come in and say, man, I just saw an alligator in the other room. Really? Yeah, right. Just making up stuff. That's what kids do. But here we find it's not just ignorance in them. There's also arrogance. And that is a dangerous combination. Ignorance and arrogance with that ignorance is a dangerous combination. It didn't matter if they were in the church. It didn't matter if they appeared to be God, a godly person. Paul tells Timothy later of those having the appearance of godliness, but denying the power thereof, avoid such people. See, false teachers had to be exposed with the intent of leading them to the gospel and truth. 
See, all of these truths that Paul brings out to Timothy here, they are important for the church today. They're not first century problems. They are issues for the church today. And church, our goal and heart is to know the truth. It is to live the truth. It is to teach the truth. It is to defend the truth. Because the church is the pillar and buttress of what church? The truth. This is why doctrine matters. Doctrine is what truth is. And if we forsake and neglect doctrine, we neglect the truth. So I beg of us to think about this today. Do we know the truth? Number one, do you know the truth who is Jesus Christ? Do you know him? I'm not saying if you've been to church, you've been religious, and you've heard of him, and you believe he was a real guy, and that he really did die. I'm talking about have you ever been born again? Do you know him by faith? Do you know who, him who is the way, the truth, and the life? If you don't today, you must repent and believe on him. He's the only Savior. But aside from that also, we as a church, we seek to know true doctrine and live it out in our lives because Scripture makes it unmistakably clear that doctrine matters. Doctrine matters. Let us stand to our feet as we close with song and prayer. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this text. We thank you for the word of God. We thank you for the privilege that we have to worship you together. We see plainly how important doctrine is to you. Paul starts this letter urging the importance of doctrine in the church at Ephesus. Lord, doctrine is not only important there and then, it is important here today. May we at Lee Creek be a doctrinally grounded church, rooted in what truth is from your word. I believe we are this, But Lord, it would not take much for false teachers to try to infiltrate because that is always Satan's goal. Those who hold truth, he seeks to deceive and draw away. Help us to be mindful of the enemy's snares and attacks. Help us always to have our minds saturated with the word of God. Help us, Lord, to love the truth with all of our heart. In Jesus' name, amen.